Welcome to this peer voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash ECA. This independent learning activity is funded by Eli Lilly Canada Incorporated. Hello, I'm Dr. Martin Katzman. I'm the clinic director at the Stark Clinic for Mood and Anxiety Disorders. Thank you for coming to this program, which is going to share insights into the psychosocial impact of alopecia areata. As a dermatologist, why do you need to really consider psychiatric or psychological aspects of alopecia areata? It's important to understand that when you are seeing a patient suffering with alopecia areata, their burden of disease and their quality of life is extremely affected by how they're doing psychologically. So in essence, we are moving from specialty as a dermatologist to as a physician, how do I help my patient get better? Now, when we look at alopecia areata, we're all familiar with the physical burden. Patients with alopecia areata have to be careful about skin sensitivity. So things like sunburns and rashes, they are more likely to suffer from irritants like debris from the air, smoke, water, primarily because of loss of nasal hair or eyebrows or eyelashes. But the psychological aspects are extremely important because they are going to change the trajectory of the patient suffering with the condition burden of disease plays out in multiple spheres from a psychosocial standpoint. In fact, approximately 70% of patients suffering with alopecia areata are also suffering with psychiatric disorders. And it's not surprising, in particular, as the patient will tell you, this is a life-changing event. So if you were to see today, say, 10 patients in your practice with alopecia areata, three of them may be suffering with depression or anxiety. And if you look at them over time, you're going to see numbers up to maybe 60%, 70%. And the difference between the patient with alopecia areata and control groups is the amount of damage it does to self-image, the likelihood of it making the person feel embarrassed taking away self-confidence and damaging self-esteem. And that's going to present with both anxiety and depression. So we can understand how alopecia areata could lead to depression. And it really is that profound negative influence on well-being. But we also need to realize that depression itself can make someone more vulnerable to developing alopecia areata. And the presence of depression can worsen alopecia areata. Anxiety disorders, and particularly a presentation where concentration and anxiety problems result, can also further worsen or trigger alopecia areata. The onset is bilateral, the alopecia areata triggering anxiety, but also the anxiety triggering alopecia areata. Similarly, one of the risk factors is alexithymia. These are people who suffer with deficits in really understanding what they're feeling. It's the adolescent you often see when you go, you seem upset, are you? And their response is, I don't know. I don't know what I'm feeling. 
And those individuals are more likely to have difficulty processing their stress. And that's much more likely to trigger autoimmune presentations and specifically alopecia areata. Now, how does that make sense? Well, stress itself may have effects on the hair follicle. Lots of literature discussing it in relation to mast cell function and neurogenic inflammation. In part, stopping the follicle's immune privilege and resulting in premature destruction of the follicle. So alopecia areata causes increased risk of anxiety and depression. But equally important is the concept of anxiety and depression activating stress hormones that facilitate a cascade that increases the risk of autoimmune disorders, specifically alopecia areata. Now, there's lots of cultural associations that play there. As soon as you see this individual suffering with alopecia areata, you realize they're likely going to be avoiding activities. They're going to be anxious about being noticed or exposed. And even if they're wearing wigs, for example, or trying to camouflage their alopecia areata, it affects their daily routine. It, it takes longer to get ready. It costs more in their lifestyle because they want wigs and various other forms of camouflage. They're self-conscious. If they play sports, the concern about the wig being dislodged and resulting in an exposure will affect their performance. Physically, the wig itself might be itchy, and that too may affect your patient. And of course, fears around attractiveness, having lost eyebrows, eyelashes, etc. Now, what psychosocial factors play out are often affected by a number of personal, individualized factors. For example, younger patients are more likely to experience anxiety than older patients suffering with it, in part because of the scrutiny that is inherent to the age. The adolescent, the university student, the early 20s individual is much more vulnerable where scrutiny and evaluation may be a major part of their experience. One can imagine that gender plays a role, and it's pretty clear that women are more likely to suffer than men, in part because hair is much more a factor in estimations of beauty in women. Duration matters. So for example, the longer you have alopecia areata, the more likely you are to suffer with learned helplessness and therefore more anxiety. And of course, the more severe the alopecia areata, the more likely you are to suffer with psychosocial symptoms. So we need to look for mental health challenges in our populations to screen for mood and anxiety disorders. And there are a number of standardized tools that can be used in practice. Things like a PHQ-9, a GAD-7. These are two pen and paper scales that your clients can fill out while they're sitting waiting for assessment. But simply asking them, how are you dealing with this? How do you feel about yourself? If things seem so terrifying that you wonder about, can you go on? Putting these questions out there is going to change the trajectory of your patient. So in summary, it's imperative to pick up the multiple features of alopecia areata and not to exclude the extremely important psychosocial presentations, alopecia areata has a high prevalence of comorbid depression and anxiety. 
It also may have a long premorbid course that triggered their alopecia areata. Curing the disease is not necessarily where we are today, but treating all the factors increases our likelihood for a better outcome. Thank you for listening. Alopecia areata is a very common autoimmune disease. It is more common in children and adolescents compared to adults. And the mean range of onset, 26 to 36 years, is what I generally see in my practice. We can imagine how this is a pretty tricky time of life to have hair loss, just in terms of this is a time of life where people are interviewing for jobs, meeting partners, developing their social network. And although it's not physically disabling, as we've seen in our previous presentation, it can have a devastating impact on the psychological well-being of patients. Assessment of extent and severity of disease, including off-scalp body sites, is important as this can inform treatment choices. Historically, alopecia areata has been a very difficult condition to treat, but there are new treatments on the horizon, and I'm hoping this will make patient care for alopecia areata easier for both the patient and the physician. In this presentation, we'll look at how we can optimize the clinical assessment and diagnosis of alopecia areata and hopefully improve our practice. So how do we diagnose patients with alopecia in general? Typically, it's diagnosed on clinical history and physical examination. But when we're thinking about our differential diagnosis, the clinical history really should include some of the following. Age of onset, because alopecia areata tends to have an earlier onset in life. Duration of disease, if it's less than three months, this is usually quite an acute process. And this may indicate more aggressive therapy is needed. Family history of hair loss, including alopecia areata, is important. Are there any triggers? Sometimes with alopecia areata, people may describe an intense stress in their life that happened prior to the onset. And are there any associated symptoms? Pain burning scales, shedding of scales would be very atypical and might make you think of another diagnosis. Eyelash, eyebrow, body hair, and nail changes are quite typical with alopecia areata. Other autoimmune conditions can be associated with alopecia areata. They tend to run together. Previous treatments and response to treatment are really important because this helps you understand where you're going to go next. And of course, assessing the impact on the quality of life of the patient, which may change our treatment because something that may seem minimal may be intensely impactful for the patient. And then when we do our physical exam, of course, in addition to the scalp, checking eyebrows, eyelashes, nails, and body hair, Confirming that it's non-scarring versus scarring alopecia, which would be a completely different differential diagnosis, is one of the first things to assess for. So what are the characteristic features we're expecting with alopecia areata? Well, typically we see complete loss of all terminal hair and at least one patch on the scalp. There can be remaining vellus hairs or white hairs, but terminal hairs are gone. We should see intact visible follicular ostea. So the follicles are still there, but they're empty as opposed to a scarring type of hair loss where the follicles are absent. Increased hair shedding in an active phase and no follicular inflammation, no erythema, no bogginess, no induration, no scale.
So what's our differential diagnosis? If we see patchy, non-scarring alopecia and we're not 100% sure it's alopecia areata, you should think about trichotillomania. It can look quite similar if it's very localized. You should think about tinea capitis. We don't want to miss an infection, so look for scale, look for erythema. The scale is usually the, the biggest giveaway. Pressure-induced alopecia is something that's not super common, but you have to think about it. If a patient had a surgery or was in ICU for several months or had pressure on their scalp for any prolonged period, and secondary syphilis is a rare cause of non-scarring patchy alopecia. So think about that just to make sure we're not missing anything. And what are supporting features? So if there's patchy body hair loss or loss in the eyebrows or eyelashes. Of course, this is more typical of alopecia areata. Alopecia areata can involve the nails. It's usually seen more with severe disease. And it can be quite disabling for patients because they can have significant pitting, crumbling, fragility, exclamation mark hairs would support alopecia areata. So this is where the proximal end of the hair next to the scalp is narrower than the distal end. So it looks like an exclamation mark on the scalp. Also very typical for alopecia areata, von Dermoskvi's yellow dots, which just are empty hair follicles with sebum in areas that are devoid of hair, as well black dots, which are representing cadaverized hairs. Typically the hair pull test is the best in alopecia areata, which we'll discuss in a moment. The tug test looks more for hair fragility and trichoscopy or dermoscopy is always helpful to confirm the diagnosis as well. If the diagnosis is not clear clinically, definitely consider biopsy. You can have a low threshold for sure for biopsy if there's any uncertainty. Speaking about the hair pull test, how do we do it? You take four bundles of hair from four sections on the scalp, parietal, frontal, and the occipital scalp, and gently pull along 50 to 60 hairs at a steady rate and see if any loose hairs will come out. The extraction of more than two hairs in an area is considered a positive test, suggesting active progressive hair loss. This can be seen in telogen effluvium as well as alopecia areata. A positive hair pull test in alopecia areata can be determined by examining the proximal ends of the pulled hairs. In alopecia areata, we can see a mix of both telogen and dystrophic antigen hairs or broken hairs in the hair pull test. Once we've decided that this is alopecia areata, we need to assess the severity, the pattern, and activities. When we look at pattern classifications of alopecia areata, it's broadly classified into three subtypes, but there's really no true consensus on any of these definitions. The most common form that we see is the patchy form of alopecia areata, patients presenting with round areas of alopecia on the scalp, and this represents more than 90% of the patients that we see. Alopecia totalis is referring to complete or near-complete hair loss in the scalp, that there's hair loss everywhere, scalp, body, eyebrows, eyelashes, that's typically when we use the term alopecia universalis. The diffuse form of alopecia areata is quite rare. Essentially, they have diffuse hair loss. There's no round patches and often confused with telogen effluvium, but it's important that we recognize this so it's treated appropriately as an autoimmune condition. Ophiasis is another pattern, sometimes associated with a poor prognosis. So how do we assess disease severity in alopecia areata? Well, there's been quite a bit of work on this in clinical trials. 
because we haven't had as many effective treatments and very little evidence for treatments in clinical practice up to this point, we haven't had a lot of really rigorous assessment tools in daily clinical practice. At present, the SALT score is the most widely recognized method of scalp hair assessment. This is a score that takes into account both the extent and the density of scalp hair loss by direct examination. We look at the percent hair loss in each area and then multiply that by the percent of the scalp covered by that area. And then we sum up those four products and that gives us a SALT score. A zero score is a good thing. That means no hair loss. Whereas a SALT score of 100 means no hair. A SALT 50 is if 50% growth from baseline. So it's this 50% improvement. And a SALT 100 is complete regrowth. You need a SALT score of at least 50 in many of the clinical trials. So what's the scalp body and nail classification? It's developed for the initial evaluation of, and it categorizes scalp, body hair loss, and nail involvement. On the scalp, they have a range from zero to five. So no hair loss to 100% hair loss. Body, it's either no body hair, some, or total body hair loss. And nails can be all 20 nails are normal versus N2B, which all nails show trachonychia, so a 20 nail dystrophy. So it just gives you an idea of some other scoring that could be used clinically to assess patient severity at the beginning and response to treatment. We've been talking about extent of hair loss and how treatment can be dictated by the extent of hair loss. For example, there's publications in acute alopecia areata, how if it's less than 30 salt score, we use intralesional corticosteroids. However, some of these guidelines will change with these new emerging treatments with times, but it's important to know that the extent does factor into treatment. Also, the pattern of hair loss, chronicity, the response to previous therapies, the location of hair loss, of course, I personally have found with my patients that if they have eyelashes or eyebrow loss, they're quite distressed. I think some people can wear a hair prosthesis for the scalp, but it's much more difficult with eyelashes and eyebrows. Nail involvement, if severe as well, can really impact patients. And then, of course, age of onset. Young kids, they can be teased at school. It can be very emotionally disabling. I think the emotional impact that alopecia areata has on a patient is really important to assess when determining treatment. It really changes the risk-benefit equation for the patient. My risk-benefit tolerance may be very different. For example, if they have what I might perceive as quite limited disease or limited hair loss, but they are in tears in my office and they're really distressed, I would escalate treatment pretty quickly in that patient. I think that piece is really important to consider in that shared decision-making. So in summary, we're learning more about alopecia areata. We certainly have learned a lot about the impact on patients and also the pathophysiology. Despite that, we still are lacking a real effective treatment, and hopefully that's going to change shortly. Assessment of extent and severity of disease, including off-scalp body sites is important as this can inform treatment choices. So doing a comprehensive assessment for severity is important. The SALT is the currently most accepted tool to measure scalp hair loss and alopecia areata. It's mostly used in trials right now, but it is good to be familiar with to understand the studies and the data presented to us.
This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.